Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and uh, we hear regularly from listeners who love uh, Dr. Ray. Uh, often there are thanks that they want to give him for the lessons he's taught them about parenting and about relationships. And uh, Ray has finally published a book which actually deals with what he's learned from his 10 children. It's called Top by 10. Dr. Ray Garendi, my guest. Good to see you again. Oh, best thing I learned, Al, was if you adopt in December, you still get the tax deduction for the whole year. <laughs> that's yeah, that's right. They pay for themselves that first year. <laughs> um, let's talk about this. I, you've said this before, and listeners may be aware of it. Did you expect to have 10 children? No. <laughs> Somebody would have come to me on the day of my wedding and said, hey, uh, you know, uh, 15 years from now, you're going to have 10 kids. And I would have pulled out my license and said, now you're thinking of somebody else in a wedding party. You are not thinking of me. <laughs> it's kind of like eating potato chips. You know, you always yeah. think you can eat one more till you throw up. <laughs> That's what happens. Here. Yeah. But at some point around five or six, my wife said, if not us, who? Yeah. We've got a solid t- marriage. T- we got the money. If not us, who? Yeah, let's, let's, go, let's go to that because that really is um, a very, uh, it's, a, it's a sober reflection on the benefits that you had as a couple, your ability to uh, carry on. You had five, six kids already, and you were saying you could do more. Yeah, pretty much. Because there was a situation there where when we were at six, a pastor friend of mine said, you know, anything more than six, you almost feel like you got a group home. <laughs> and my wife and I stopped there for a second. But she went to Santa Clara Monastery, which was where Mother Angelica was a prioress in Canton. Okay. She's praying. She wasn't Catholic yet. And she said, uh, Mary, you're a mother. And I don't even know how to pray to you, Mary. But if the Lord wants us to have another child, he's going to have to drop it in our lap. Yeah. Got yeah. a call the next day. <laughs> next <laughs> what can day, you do? Little yeah. black boy, two months premature, one month intensive care, down to university hospitals in Columbus. Wow. And the lawyer said to us, if you don't adopt him, I have only one other option. What are you going to do? Wow. Okay. What, what would that other option be? Some family in Washington State. Okay. That was it. Far away. Yeah. Far away. Um. It, uh, so how has that cha- how has that changed y- your estimate of fatherhood, having all these children? People would think as a shrink, I would be more analytical. I'd be more likely to no. I got less. I just looked at these things. Hey man, kids are kids, man. They pull all kinds of scrap. Yeah, they're going to do all kinds of stuff. I was so far less prone to overanalyze. Yeah. To look at, what does this mean? What does it mean for the future? What are the possible ingredients in his con? No! Yeah. He's eight years old. He pushed his sister down. You don't push your sister down. Go stand in the corner. Yeah. End of story. <laughs> I, was on, I was on Springer once. Yeah. I used to do Springer all the time, just before he kind of dove into the sewer. Mm-hmm. I'm on the show, and there was a lady on there that said, uh, you know, are we going to raise our kids a certain way? And I made a suggestion. I said, uh, well, you know, for disrespect, I like the essay. You write an essay, handwritten essay. And she just thought that was ridiculous. She turned to me. She says, you have any children? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. I said, I have six. And the audience turned on her. Hoo, 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 you know, the Springer audience. <laughs> right, uh, in right. your face. Yeah, yeah. Then she says, are any of them teenagers? And I said, no, no, not yet. And they turned on me. <laughs> hoo, 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 hoo. 
And they were operating out of a myth. The myth was you have to experience something before you can give valid advice. Yep. Right. That's that's ludicrous. That's nonsense. It makes absolutely no reasonable mm. sense whatsoever. So this book really is kind of an amalgam of what I brought into fatherhood already yeah. because of dealing with hundreds of people before I even had kids. Yeah. But it's interesting, Al, because I gained more credibility by having 10 children than I did by working for years with hundreds of parents yeah. across a broad spectrum. Isn't that something? That's wild. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a credential. That's a it, huge... That, it was kids. a business move. Yeah. It was a pure <laughs> business move. No. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, strong-willed children. I hated that word. I know you I do. Always that's why that I bring word. it up. It's terrible. <laughs> it is so overused. It speaks of weak-willed parents in many respects. Now, I'm not insulting anybody, but what I mean is when somebody asks my wife, do you have any strong-willed children? I don't think so. Now, how could we not have 10? You know, my kids have been drug exposed. They've been abused in the womb. They've been neglected after yes. birth. Yeah. They've had all kinds of accoutrements to their development. Why do we not have any strong-willed children? Because their mother was stronger-willed. Because yep. their mother early on taught them, here's what I expect, here's what I'm going to do, and if you fight me, which they did, here's what I'm going to do. And they learned. It was almost imprinted. Yeah. This is a woman you don't challenge and if you challenge her the old man is right behind her now you got to challenge him they will win yeah, yeah. we will win. Yeah, we control yeah. everything that's one of the first things one of the first, i just i just begun pastoring and i can't remember uh, there was a book i was reading by a, a bruce narrowmore who was an evangelical psychologist and he was talking about parenting and i'm thinking yeah i was by that time so it was, must be 86 or so so alexis would have been like three years old so i'm still a pretty young parent and one thing that's away from that book is you know be reasonable, but win. You have to see, win. See, that's heresy. Yeah, in see, child rearing now, that is heresy yeah. because that implies big people dominating little people. Yeah, but that implies it, no cooperation. Yeah, it, it doesn't work. My office is filled with people yeah. who are enlightened and psychological, and their seven-year-old is eating him for lunch. Yeah, yeah. I I think this is one of the most fundamental lessons that parents have, and people are afraid to talk about it that plainly. That's yeah. the reason I bring it up. Um, but you're a parent. You know you love your kids. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're not there to, to abuse them. They have to understand that there are limits. And your love means nothing if you don't also express it by laying down limits for them. And you have to win to ex exercise those limits. You know, one of the things I learned, and, and so, many, so many experts tell parents, let the kids set the conditions. And one of those places is affection in public. A kid gets to be 13, 14, mom, don't touch me. Yeah. Mom, don't yeah. look at me. Mm -hmm. Mom, don't say you love me. Oh, oh. I don't know if it's because I'm Italian, Al, or what it is. When I kiss you, it means something. <laughs> so my son played basketball, 17 years old. I sat four rows in the bleachers on home games. <laughs> and you know what's coming. Before the game, before he went out there, I went down on the floor, hugged him, kissed him on the cheek, and said, Petey, try not to stink the joint out. And he laughed, and I laughed. <laughs> and I asked him later, I said, Petey, do your friends think that was really weird? Did your friends think, what's with your dad? He's, he's a psycho. He said, no, Dad. 
He said, some of them came up to me and said, I wish my I dad wish my would, dad do, would that. do that. Yeah, yeah. Dad, there's no way my kid's not going to tell me I can't hug him and kiss him out in public. Yeah. That's all, not going to happen. It also helps that you could, you're a better ball player, basketball player than any of them. That's exactly right. Well, at least, that, well, he kind of he kind of surpassed kinda, me. He, okay. he grabbed the rim. I couldn't even grab the net anymore. <laughs> yeah, height has a lot to do with success <laughs> in basketball, yeah. Um, th- there are so many, and I, I, I think part of the problem is that Parents accept advice from uh, professionals who are not speaking as parents themselves. They're speaking from some abstract professional idea of what a good parent is and not trusting that parents are equipped, uh, I don't want to say by nature, by God, but parents intuit things about their kids that other people can't. They know where boundaries are. And I know they're bad parents. I know they're bad parents. But I think this fear that people have... They're bad parents not because they're psychologically incorrect. They're bad parents because they lack love or they lack structure. Yes, yes, I mean, that's right. They're bad parents. The parents who are trying hard to be good parents are the ones most likely to be victims of psychological correctness. Yeah, that's right. Because they're I looking everywhere for help. Right? Yeah. That I do what I should have said. Well, you know, maybe he's maybe he punched me because he has a poor self image. And we do this. Yeah. I, I I now call it I used to label it psychological correctness. Now I call it parenting in fear. Which is if I do this, what will be the psychological ramifications yeah. Of my decision. You know, she's abused that smartphone. I want to take it for good. Oh, how will she react? Will she get deceptive? Will she resent me? Will she hate me? Will this be the turning point in our relationship? So they cooperate on things their gut tells them. This is not good. They're uncomfortable with it, but they still go with it. That they go with it. Yeah, I know. know. It's epidemic. Yeah. You do recognize the power of temperament, though. Huge. Talk to us it's about huge. that. It's yeah. huge. You got some kids that make you feel like you're God's gift to parenting. And then you got yes. other kids by age four, you're looking for a parole officer. <laughs> That's what I always say. I'm going to bring the kids who behave well out in public because the ones who don't, I lose business. People go, hey, I'm not going to take my kid to that guy. He can't even control his own kids. Absolutely. Temperament is huge. It's enormously powerful. The statement is, you're not as good a parent as your best kid. And you're not a bad parent as your worst kid. Yeah, that's yeah. really that's really kind of the way it is. It's Parents good. will say, "I can't understand it." One family, our one daughter is in the faith. She loves the faith. She's got nine kids. She loves us all. My son, I haven't I haven't seen him in four years. Yeah, yeah. Raised in the same house. I go, yeah, he's a different kid. Yeah, and he responds to life very differently through his wiring. Yeah, and you know, my my one daughter has gotten in serious trouble with the law, and my son. Peter, the one that uh, my wife prayed for, mm-hmm. very mature, loves the faith. And he said to me the other day, he said, you know, Dad, God's going to judge me very differently yeah. than he judges and then he named his sibling. Right. Right. Okay. And it's true. She yeah. was in the womb. She was bathed in drugs and alcohol. Yeah. It really did a number on her brain. Yeah. And she navigated childhood very, very badly. Yeah. yeah. Even with me and Randy putting up the guardrails. Yeah. Yeah. So so much of what we count as virtues in ourselves are the gift of good temperament, good yes. genes. Yes. Um, it's true. Yeah. I, I I noticed this to myself, you know, from the time I was in grammar school, um, I remembered lots of, I remembered things easily. You know, words came easy. 
uh, reading was fast. Uh, spelling bees, always a champion. Well, that wasn't because I studied. I didn't exercise any great virtue. You had the gift. You know, yeah, I was just there by, you know, because whatever, however I'm wired. Yep. And I, and I think that we all should recognize that, that some of the most uh, greatest of our features um, are not things that we uh, achieved. They're things that we were given, and we may have cultivated them. We may work with them, of course. But no, uh, a lot of what I think people count as their virtues are actually gifts of temperament or um, uh, genes or God. So hold it there, Ray. i got the music coming up here. My guest, Dr. Ray Garendi, taught by 10, his newest book, A Psychologist's Father Learns from His 10 Children. Great picture on the front, too. Well, it's old enough to make me still look good. <laughs> Hold it there. I'm Al Cresto. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Ray Garendi. Uh, Taught by 10, his new book, A Psychologist's Father Learns from His 10 Children. And, um, you know, you you don't need to go into details here, but I mean, your kids run a gamut of uh, achievement and difficulty. Three white, two Hispanic, two biracial, three black. Yeah. Uh, several of them have been very drug exposed in the womb, heavily drug exposed. Yeah. We adopted four older. Before we adopted older, there was a history of neglect, <laughs> abuse. Wow. Um, but I- interestingly enough, Al, we're not alienated from any of them. That's, that's, that's a key. That's, that's, a, a key. that's amazing. That actually is I'll incredible. kill you. I'll kill you if you're going to alienate me. <laughs> <laughs> I think they know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So talk, talk to – how does that happen, though? I mean, because you're right. Such a wide range uh, of backgrounds, genetic uh, issues – how did you main, How are you able to maintain um, respect and uh, connectedness? You're still connected to them all, and they're connected to you. Going back to what you said about temperament and genetics, by nature, I'm a very expressive, affectionate guy. Yeah. yeah. So I constantly was hugging and kissing and telling my kids how much I loved them, even though our standards were stricter than most of the people around them, and they knew it. Interesting. My son said to me something the other day. He said, Dad, I always thought that you didn't get us what all of our friends had because you couldn't afford it. He said, I now realize you did that because you thought that was best for us. I said, yeah, Petey, you're right on that. He said, thanks, Pop. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of amazed at that, too. Now, there were, there were a couple periods where we were estranged. Yeah. One wrote us off for eight months, another one we didn't hear from for two years. But both of them came back very, very, as they matured. Sure. And again, they bouncing through life, but as they matured a bit. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, I had the secret. I knew how to do it. That wasn't it. That wasn't it at all. Yeah. It was a lot of perseverance. Another thing that's huge, this is big. Lack of discipline in loving homes destroys a lot of relationships. Too much fighting with the kid, too much arguing, too much negotiation, too much resentful. The parent has to be powerfully, lovingly strong. Yeah. 
You know, my yeah. kids knew if you're not going to get a smartphone, you're not going to get a smartphone. Let's. It's not even. We're not negotiating. We're not going to fight it out. It's, it's not fighting it out. It's a subtle issue. That's yeah. it. And yeah. if you're going to fight me, watch what's going to happen. Yeah. And that sidestepped a lot of stuff. Now, if later, interesting example, my daughter, my youngest daughter, talked to some adoptive kids. And they were throwing up in their parents' face, I don't have to listen to you. You're not my real mother, okay? Oh, interesting, yeah. So my daughter got pulled into that. She wrote us this letter, this letter that basically said, you know, I don't have to listen to you. You're not my real mom. My wife saw it, and I saw the flames oh, coming out of her ears. I can imagine. So she put it up. She put, she put it up on the cover. She taped it up on the cover. My oldest son, who by temperament is much more level-headed, he came down, he read the letter, and he started laughing. And he said, yeah, I remember when I was 13, I felt like this, but I wasn't stupid enough to write it down. (laughs) (laughs) So we both started laughing, and that was that. It was okay, fine. And since then, she's outgrown it, and she loves us, and she's told us many times, I'm so glad I grew up in this home. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. you mentioned the parents make the mistake of uh, mis, uh, thinking that discipline um, is purely a function of authority rather than just it's a function of love. Uh, if you love, you will discipline. I don't want the world to discipline my kids. That's what happens. That's what if happens. You, if you don't discipline, the police will. Yeah. Uh, other state and agencies they discipline will. a lot harder than I would. I'll just sit you in a chair. Yeah. You know, they'll punch you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you've you've uh, had a lot of experience. I mean, you're a professional psychologist, uh, earned doctorate in the field. You've worked for years in uh, clinical practice, um, parent of 10. You and I met back in late 1980s, I think, or My second book. Yeah. Back to yeah. the family. So we've both gone through a lot of time since we first met. What has changed? You were already critical of some a lot of the advice in your professional field mm-hmm. when we first met. Yes. Here we are, thirty years later. What's changed? Has the field gotten more sensible, or is it going worse? I think it's gotten less sensible. Yeah. And part of the reason for that is there's a divergence between the craziness of the culture and the experts. The experts, as a group, have flowed with the culture. They have they have essentially followed more ideology than they followed the research. It's stunning. It's hap- I, I'm I'm shocked. I'm stunned. I look at this yeah. and I'm thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. For example, in transgender. Yeah, I, that's exactly where I was going to go. But go ahead. Yeah. Obviously, there's all kinds of social complications to this. Sure. Social media, peer pressure, uh, the fact that many kids return to their own biological sex yeah. after. But my profession doesn't deal with that. Their, it, their, it, their view is whatever the child says is. And this was known before the mania over transgenderism. Right. It was gender dysphoria. Uh, was, it was rare. It was rare, but it was generally understood that the kids would return to their biological sex. They, a lot of things would resolve themselves. That's what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. That was known. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden... It was as though somehow we discovered something different about the person that now we say, oh, my gosh, if a person 
doesn't have conformity between their biological sex and their self-concept of gender, we, ha- we need to do something about that. Nothing was discovered, right? There's, there's no discoveries along the path here to make us think that what was common sense 30 years ago on handling gender dysphoria is somehow no longer valuable today. Chronological snobbery. Yeah. We're enlightened. Yeah. Anybody who came before us was not. I saw a survey, Al. I forget how large it was. It was large. Do you know what percentage of kids surveyed, I think they were predominantly adolescents, called themselves LGBTQ? Yeah. 20! 20 percent those statistics have never ever in the in the lifetime of surveys on this ever come close to that and if you say well that's because it's more open now well then you have to ask this question why is it not among the 55 year olds at that percentage that's right because we're more open yeah yeah we're more mature we'd be more open able to come out uh if we were that way Mm -hmm. No, it's it's a strange, it's very strange, and it, it's disturbing um, to see uh, this, the transgender thing. Uh, and what I don't like, what bothers me about it too, is that the instances of quote gender dysphoria that are there and need patient counseling or you know whatever is necessary, um, they're less likely to get that because they're immediately going to be assumed that. Oh, there's no reason that your gender dysphoria is settled because how you feel is who you really are. And that's that's not true. No. So I, I just, I'm just amazed at... I don't know where it'll happening. end up. One of the things that's happening is that reality tends to intrude. Yeah. So a lot of the... Uh, there was one survey done that the suicide rate, you probably are familiar yeah. with this, yeah. the suicide rate uh, 10 years post-surgery is up to 19 times the general population, which answers the question, was my anxiety and distress due to my gender confusion, or were there other factors that didn't get resolved? And this was actually an important point that uh, Dr. Paul McHugh made when he took over the uh, this, this field at Johns Hopkins. Uh, he replaced a fellow by the name of Dr. John Money, who uh, believed that uh, gender was a pure social construct, no necessary connection whatsoever to biological. <laughs> so, so he's he's he a fellow. He has to ignore massive amounts yep. of research. Yeah, he 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 is considered a quite a pioneer in the field. Uh, I say, if you want to know what Dr. John Money was about, take a look at the book uh, "As Nature Made Him" or the the documentary uh, "The Boy with No Penis." which tells the story of him trying to turn biological boys into girls, a, bi- a biological twin who had had a bad circumcision, trying to turn him into a female. It's a tragic story. Ugly, ugly, ugly. When Dr. Uh, Dr. Paul McHugh took over at Johns Hopkins, he was, had, was very skeptical about this gender reassignment surgery. So they commissioned studies and came to the conclusion that those who went through gender reassignment surgery were also were often, uh, you know, happy with the surgery. But the presenting problem that led to the surgery was unresolved. And so Paul McHugh said, well, listen, if that's the case, then all we're doing is cosmetic surgery here. We're not, this is not psychologically necessary. So they stopped gender reassignment surgery. They've since picked it back up. I, and that's right. I just heard that they've picked it back mm-hmm. up in the last year or two. Um, and they don't call it reassignment anymore. No, what's the new word? Affirming. 
Oh, gender affirming. That's right. I have you heard have that. to you, linguistic yeah. engineering precedes social engineering. Yeah, I, I just think uh, it's, it's just amazing what we're willing to tolerate when, in fact, we actually don't have all. I think people th- imagine that all these. Th- there's still questions about the development of sexual attraction. There's so much we don't know about psychosexual development, you know, uh, and I think that t- 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 we we have people who are basically experimenting uh, with young people here, and because they don't, they they grant every uh, every um, zany idea that a, a young person has about self concept and identity. Uh, they they assume that that needs to be affirmed. Uh, in order to keep the kid part of a broader package, the broader package was the self-esteem movement, yeah, yeah which sure. essentially has morphed into the "I am God" movement, oh. which yeah, is "I can yeah. declare reality," <laughs> and that's the way it is. Yeah, and I, among our children, you know, people would say, "Were you worried about establishing self-image?" I said, "No, self-image is a byproduct. Yeah, it's not something you chase. If you chase self-image, you end up with with self-centeredness." It's a byproduct. Yeah. If, if if I do my very best as a human being to show you I love you, yeah. then then you're going to feel relatively comfortable, depending on your temperament. You sure. know, some kids are insecure by their nature, yeah. and other kids blast into a cement wall and realize it's the wall's fault. Okay, I got that. But I never, ever, as a psychologist with my own kids, agonized over all these psychological questions and complications and all of that, and especially given that my kids, according to understanding, would have had, by their experience, more of those. Yeah, Yeah, that's right, given their backgrounds. Yeah, Ray, hold it there. We're going to continue. Dr. Ray Garendi, my guest, his book is Taught by Ten, A Psychologist's Father Learns from His Ten Children. I'm Al Cresta. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Ray Garendi. Talk by 10. A psychologist's father learns from his 10 children. Um, so your training in psychology was not a great benefit. You know what it did, Al? I'll tell you what it did. Yeah. My, not so much the training, because when I got that PhD, people, people are surprised to hear this. What I know now is 95% of what I've experienced and learned on my own. Yeah, okay. Okay, Not, sure. it wasn't for the PhD. When I came out with that PhD, yeah, I had, that, I had those letters after my name, permanent head damage. <laughs> but I wasn't equipped. I didn't know, okay? So what happened was I, I learned with my own children what I kind of already knew with other parents, and I brought it into my own life, and I experienced it. Yeah, yeah. For example, I'll give you a, a, a question I always had as a young father. If my children become uncooperative and difficult as adults, would I be able to ask them to leave my home? And many parents can't. Many parents would say, I'm devastatingly afraid. Yeah. You know, he'll crash and burn. I couldn't live with myself. And I found out I could. Yeah. I found out for a couple of my kids, I had to tell them, you have to you have to find another place to live because you're just not being cooperative. They'd push the boundaries that, that they, bad. Uh, yeah. Yes, they did. Yeah. Now, at this point, I have great relationships with them. But at that time, yeah. one was 18, one was 19. I said, nope, you can't. 
and and I, I the, the thing that moved me, Al, was that not that, that I was being a dictatorial hard butt, but because I knew I wasn't helping him. If I let him live here under those conditions as a young adult, what am, what am I doing? I'm not helping. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I learned about myself. I yeah. had to experience it. Yeah. No, that's right. There, that's uh, those kind of boundary problems. Uh, I think a lot of people are afraid. They would never imagine a, a, uh, something would arise that would force them to ask their child to leave or just to refuse to let them come back home. Um, They're afraid. Yeah. They're very afraid. What if he writes me off? What if he doesn't talk to me for 12 years? Yeah. They're very afraid. Yeah. And I, I knew that... As a dad, I, I can't live at peace if I tie my peace to what they do. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. There's no way. I want to I live joyfully. I want to live peacefully. Our Lord didn't put an asterisk there that said, I leave you peace unless yeah. your children act up as adults. Then yeah. I can't give you peace. Right, right. Yeah. And so I talk to parents who are just lifelong devastated. They've been devastated for 32 years because of their 22-year-old back when decided to do X or BX. I couldn't. I I couldn't. I can't live like that. Yeah. I, I, and you can talk about temperament. I'm naturally a guy that likes to carry on. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I I couldn't tie my joy to what my ten kids decided to do with their lives. Uh, that keeps that keeps you from that gives that gives them their own sense of identity too, right? I mean, they they're not enmeshed. You're. With your identity, they know that you stand apart from them. You're not going to be—you may be hurt that they leave, but you're not going to be devastated. Um, my my parents threw me out when I was 17. 17? Yeah, I didn't yeah. wait for you to be 18. Yeah, no, no. You punk. And yeah, two, two, about four <laughs> months before I turned 18. A long time ago, and uh, I was in the middle of big changes anyways that they were unaware of. I was actually— revising my uh i was actually becoming a lot more mature i just hadn't shown it yet uh-huh. uh so it took about a year for them to realize that i was a much different person uh than i had been when they tossed me out they did it in my case because they wanted to protect my siblings i was the oldest and they thought i was a very bad influence yeah they don't, i don't case. want you hanging yeah. around with your older brother he's yeah. a bad influence yeah exactly <laughs> so and you know i always looked at that and unfortunately we didn't have we didn't have the kind of relationship that helped enabled me to go and explain to them that I was no longer committed to those uh, misbehaviors that led to my being expelled. You know, um, you had already been characterized. Yeah, yeah, and so it took a while, uh, but I think that that unfortunately. That kind of thing is is at times necessary in order to uh, they were thought they thought they were actually being a redemptive force in my life uh, by doing that. That was the kind of discipline they thought would lead to my conversion, turnabout, whatever you want to call it, change of morals. And you know that you know I look back at it today. It was. A, it had some had some positive things to it and some negative things to it, but uh, it just struck me that that was what a they thought that was the response. That's it. That's what I'm looking for. They thought that was the responsible thing for them to do to protect the ki- other kids. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, uh, 
it's worth, you know, I think that's... We've we're had afraid to do that. To, we're afraid uh, of that kind of discipline We had today. to do that uh, within the past year or so. One of my sons was coming in and telling the other kids about his escapades, and we said, if you do that, we can't invite you to family gatherings. Yeah. So he backed off. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're, you have, you're still connected with all your kids, Pretty which much. is remarkable mm-hmm. to me. Um given how different they are. What do you say to parents who have children who are alienated from them in a serious way? I mean, they don't hear from them. Uh, they No phone calls, nothing. They don't know what the kids are doing. What do you say to them? One of the things that is a generational epidemic, I don't think it's ever happened in our culture, which is high percentages of the children are turning on their parents. Wow. High, very high. You you and I, we, our generation didn't turn on our parents in the numbers that the younger people are turning on their parents. There's a lot of reasons for this. One, of course, they've been raised spoiled. Another one is they have abandoned religion. Another one is their tolerance level for anything that doesn't go the way they want it is about a millimeter deep. So if mom and dad aren't perfect human beings, if they're irritable or they're frustrating or they can be yeah, difficult, yeah, then yeah. they're toxic. Yeah. Get them out of my life. I can't tell you how many times a parent has come to me devastated because a therapist told their young adult child, you need to separate for your well-being from your parent. These are not dangerous people. Matter of fact, these are probably halfway decent people. But they're just not the way I want you to be. And that intolerance is most often leveled at the parent. I just don't like who you are, how you think, your religion, your politics. I don't like it. And I advise most parents, if if you smell that's coming, you better really watch what you say if it's not asked for. Go go into that lore. If you say, well, are you going to baptize him? Uh, Mom, mom, we'll decide that when we decide it. Let it go. Okay. You already said it once. Unfortunately, they don't stop. So they say it seven times, and daughter-in-law finally decides, I don't want to have anything to do with your mother. Gotcha. And then son goes along because he's got to live with her. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And the parents are going, what happened? And usually, usually, not... Not always, but when I ask, did you give your opinions too much? Well, in the beginning I did because I thought I was trying to be helpful. Mm-hmm. How was it taken? Oh, it became pretty clear they didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And you kept doing it, didn't you? Well, not as much. See what happened? Yeah. They already were on shaky turf with you because you're a Catholic, one of those. You're already on shaky turf. Yeah. They don't have any religion. Yeah. So your whole view of life clashes with theirs, and now you're telling them to take their kid to church? Aye. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's a good point. Once, once you've said something and you've made them aware of it, why do you keep repeating it? You keep repeating it because they don't do... I'm going to get through to them. Yeah, right, because they don't do what you you want. Because I feel responsible for the way they are because there was something deficient in my parenting that made them this way. So I got to correct it. I got to correct it because if I I don't correct it, then there's something wrong with me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
are, do, in your experience, do religious, uh, highly religious parents or highly committed religious parents, uh, do they make certain types of errors in parenting that yes. non-religious people yes. don't make? They no. feel more pressure to shape their kids religiously. They feel more pressure to guide them. They feel like it's their responsibility. They feel like whatever they failed, they got to make it right now, and they don't know when to shut up. Yeah. For example, they might say, my daughter's living with her boyfriend, and I've told them. I told them they are not welcome in this house as long as they're living together. I said, well, you can do that, but you're going to lose your daughter. Right. right. Well, I don't want to condone what they do. You're not. If you invite him over <laughs> and he eats with you and you treat him nice and loving, you're not condoning what they're doing. But that's what they'll think. Well, what they think is not your concern. You need to keep that warmth open so they don't look at their mother as the only person in their life that doesn't accept us. Right. It's that's really quite amazing, isn't it? That um, somehow we think we're making the point stronger by not having them come to Thanksgiving dinner, right? And um, when in fact we're we're actually dulling uh, the blade there uh, because the the kids are they don't want me, they don't want me, so I'm not going to be there. Yeah, yeah. Um, do mothers and fathers approach things differently? Dads tend to be a little more cut and dry. And there's research on this. Mm -hmm. Women are more nurturing by nature. Women are more talkative by nature. Women are more negotiable by nature. Women are more, let's get in touch with your feelings by nature. That's true. As a generality, that's true. Dads are more, hey, this is the way it is. This is where I'm standing that's it. It's a little more black and white. Yeah. Okay. Now, at one time, that served our culture well because women needed us. We killed food. Mm-hmm. We built things. Right. And our communication skills were not priority, really. Right. The, the protective skills were priority. Yeah, they were more survival. Yes. Yeah. Well, now, see, the women don't need any of that. That's right. The women have their own education. They have their own money. They can, they're not really going to be marauded by anything for the most part. Mm-hmm. So now the pressure is for guys to be more like women in their communication skills, in, in their connectivity. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying you don't strive for that. I'm saying it's not as natural to men. Yeah. Yeah. Women will come in my office for marriage counseling, and they know they've got a litany about two and a half feet long of everything that they are dissatisfied about their husband. I'll ask him. I don't know. I thought everything was going pretty good. Now, that's an extreme, but I do hear that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, when I was doing pastoral counseling, I heard that too. Do you know why uh, uh, Janet is seeking a divorce? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Has and, she told you? Well, she said some things. Yeah. It, it, it's it's amazing. Eighty percent of divorces are now initiated by women. Wow, I yeah. did not know that. Oh yeah, eighty percent of women, and and you could say, well, that's because guys are such jerks. You could say that, mm-hmm. but it could be also that emotionally women can get more quickly dissatisfied with things. I'm not I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just simply saying that's yeah. the reality of things. Jordan Peterson talks about that, and he mm-hmm. gets in trouble for talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, you get you get in trouble for talking about uh, any, making any anything that goes against <laughs> the way you're supposed to think. And I'm, you know, I'm getting too old to be worried about that. Right. I've noticed that. <laughs> I get more crotchety. You're, you're get off my now lawn. Than I met you. <laughs> Ray, thanks so much. Al, my pleasure. Dr. Ray Garendi, taught by ten, a psychologist's father learns from his ten children. I'm Al Cresta.